Have you ever thought that you are not living your best life and could be happier if you didn't have a condition like PCOS, colitis, migraines, anxiety, depression, hormonal issues or skin issues? Have you ever been passed from specialist to specialist or you're waiting for an appointment about a physical or mental health condition and felt worried, frustrated, depressed? Or have you ever wondered how to go about being the fittest that you could ever be? Stay tuned. This podcast may change your life. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the Eat, Burn, Sleep podcast. I am your host, Yalda Alawi, nutritional therapist, inflammation pioneer, and the founder of the Eat, Burn, Sleep platform, an acclaimed gut health and anti-inflammation platform, which is helping thousands of people around the world reach optimal levels of physical and mental health, and guiding them on being the best versions of themselves and ultimately effortlessly. Throughout the series, I'm going to educate you about how all aspects of health are connected and give you some insight to the eat, burn, sleep technique that I have developed with aim to give you some tools to tune into your best version so that you are living your best life, your way in your corner of the world, a lot stronger happier and a lot healthier without extreme measures. In each podcast, I have invited various individuals who each have their own fascinating stories to share and that will help further educate yourselves on nutrition and physical and mental health. I also invite specialists in their field, whether it is physical or mental health, to help you understand further the connection between gut health, chronic inflammation, mental health, immune system health, and physical health. I am so grateful that they are joining me. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Eat, Burn, Sleep podcast. I am so excited to bring an amazing guest today. I've been waiting to record this podcast for a while. I have with me Don Sherling, medical doctor based in the US, clinical affiliate assistant professor of internal medicine and author of Eat Everything, How to Ditch Additives and Emulsifiers, Heal Your Body and Reclaim the Joy of Food. Hi Don, how are you? Hi Yalda, thanks for having me here. I'm so excited to talk to you again. Me too. So to all our listeners, I you might have seen a story of mine on Instagram where I'm pointing out at zero calorie additives, which were in so-called healthy foods at Whole Foods in London and quite expensive foods, actually. Uh, and I was saying that these additives are linked to gut health, inflammation, obesity, and many disorders. The person who started educating me on this topic is Dawn. And we're going to hear today about her work, about her research, how she started understanding more about these additives, which are legal in the US, in Europe, and are actually quite harmful. Um, we're also going to talk about the fact that all health taboos need to be removed. Any one of you listening, suffering from IBS or being overweight or hormonal issues, Please stop feeling guilty. It's not your fault. The food around us has changed and we're going to delve into that. And finally, um, I'm going to ask Dawn to share a few tips with us to improve our everyday <laughs> microbiome, digestive system and, um, and mood. Dawn, will you share a little bit uh, more about how you started uh, working on this? Sure. So, so thank you again. And I started by accident, actually. I uh, started coming down with symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, IBS myself, uh, shortly after having my daughter. And I did all the things that I'm sure a lot of, of your listeners do, a lot of women do, uh, men too, but 
more women, we like to blame ourselves um, when things are going wrong. So I said, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm so busy. I'm not exercising enough. I'm too stressed out. I'm, I'm not eating enough vegetables. And, and it was, you know, I was feeling badly and it was, it was all my fault and I needed to change my ways and I needed to, to do better. Um, in, the, in the midst of this, uh, I got to go to Italy. So I'm here in the United States, in Florida, and I uh, got to go to Italy with my family uh, one summer and for a few weeks. And upon arriving there, almost instantly I felt better. And I thought, well, this is strange. How am I feeling better eating all of these foods that I thought you know, I wasn't supposed to be eating? Um, and I thought, oh, well, right, must be less stress. I'm on vacation. That must be, that must be it. The next summer, though, I got to travel back to Italy. I was miserable again back in the U.S., 24 hours back in the U.S. I was, my bowels were completely not doing, not doing the things they were supposed to do, not behaving well. And uh, the following summer, I went back. And again, the same phenomenon happened. So after two times in a row, I realized, wait a minute, there's something different about the food here. And I started really looking into it when I got back um, through PubMed searches. And PubMed is a search engine here for uh, medical articles. And so I was really, I was really doing a deep dive um, into, into mainstream medical articles. And we think this, oh, well, this stuff isn't mainstream. It, it actually is. It's actually in the mainstream medical journals, what's going on with these mostly emulsifiers and other additives that, that are being used a lot and a lot more. Um, and what, what they're doing to our bodies, to our health, to our microbiome. Um, it's, it's in science, it's in nature, it's in cell, all of these very well-regarded medical journals. I started eliminating this stuff from my diet and it was like, I was, I was normal again. How, how could it be so easy? And then I started encouraging other people and that's how we got to talking because, um, our, our friend in common, who's also a physician said, well, you've got to talk to Yalda. You've got to, you know, have this conversation with her because this is, this is really amazing. And so, yeah, that's how, that's how we got to meet. And that's how I got to, to realize sort of what, what all of these um, things that are so accepted and, and so normalized now here in the U S I think in the UK too, less so in some parts of, of Europe, which is, which is good. Um, because there is some resistance and also there's some, some folks around the world who I got to interview for my book who are fighting back against what these additives are, um, are doing in our food. Okay. I want to hear more about that, but I'm just going to give a little bit of background to our listeners. So, um, there is this amazing lady called Natasha Singh, who's a medical doctor based, um, in the U S she uses the platform for her own health and recommends it to her patients, particularly those with pain conditions. And th she put Dawn and I in touch. This is how we connected and we did a live during lockdown. The internet is actually such an amazing thing and social media because we get to actually advance the research and spread the word. So it's not just scientists talking about it and not knowing what's happening. We're having, there's an outlet to let the general public know what's going on and be more mindful of their health. Um, what you're saying is so true. When I go to France, I can eat bread, not tons of bread. So for those of you who don't know, I suffer from ulcerative colitis and I'm not allergic to gluten, but I can't have too much bread. Um, when I'm in the UK, even if it's a high quality sourdough, somehow, I do not digest it. <laughs> when I'm in Paris with my friends, ordering a plateau de fruits de mer, like seafood platter, uh, having a glass of wine and a little bit of bread, not tons of it, my tummy is fine. I think that not only they don't have emulsifiers and additives, but also there's probably more bacteria because of less rules around hygiene. They, this whole business of being too clean is killing us. Um, so you experienced that when you went uh, to Italy, the difference in uh, in your tummy. And also when we're on holidays, of course, we stress less and that supports gut motility and uh, the immune system, less cortisol means better digestion. So Dawn, uh, you, you've just mentioned some people fighting against those additives. Um, who are these people? Where are they? How are they doing it? 
So, so yeah, so a couple of people who I got to interview, one in France, actually, Benoit Chassain. I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, he is a researcher at INSERM in, in France, which is a big research uh, institution. And he is looking at emulsifiers one by one to test them, to see what they are doing. He has uh, mouse models, and then he's been able to do a few studies with people. Those, of course, are a lot more expensive. So uh, a lot of it is based on mouse models, but that's what we have. What's interesting to me is that he is doing these studies on these additives that are already in our food. So you have to ask yourself, well, why weren't these done previously? And for, for some, the answer, you know, it's not, it's not malicious. It's that they didn't have the technology. 20 years ago, nobody was talking about the microbiome. And a lot of what we know about the microbiome is based on DNA technology that we didn't have until very recently. So we couldn't have known. Um, but these substances were approved without this knowledge. And now that we realize that uh, there are changes, maybe detrimental changes because of these additives, there are researchers like Benoit in France who um, are going through these additives and trying to figure out exactly what they do. So he has a wonderful study that he did looking at 20 of them and seeing what changes they cause uh, to, to the human microbiome. And when I spoke with him, he told me that in France, actually, there's, there's been a movement and there's more of a push now to label items with emulsifiers. So it says emulsifier-free or additive-free on, on the packaging on food now in France. And he asked me if we had something similar in the U.S. And no, <laughs> we don't. We have a lot of um, what a patient of mine called propaganda, actually, in, in the U.S., unfortunately. So we have things that are, that are on food that say organic. Uh, that say, you know, all kinds of wonderful, all natural, which means absolutely nothing um, here. And so in France, yes, they're starting to, to list things more. And when I was actually recently back in Italy, they had uh, packages and things that were listing emulsifier free. So that's great uh, that consumers are able to see that in those places. In Brazil, um, there's an incredible researcher um, and and proponent of public health by the name of Carlos Montero. And I don't know if you're familiar with the NOVA food classification system? No, I'm not. Okay, so this is, um, this is his brainchild, uh, and, and he's trying to promote it actually around the world because um, I don't know if we're going to get into talking about what ultra-processed food is versus processed food. Yeah, that'd we be good. To, yeah, to educate people. Yeah, so so the idea of a food being processed, you mentioned bread, and and that's a wonderful example because bread is a processed food, right? We take wheat and it's processed, and then it's made into into bread, baked into bread. So it's processed. Is that bad? Not necessarily. Um, should we be eating as much whole food as possible? Yes. Should we not eat as much processed food? Also, yes. Um, however, as you pointed out, yes, you can have a little bit of it. And it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Not so for ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed food is, is category four in the NOVA system. And, and basically what ultra-processed food is, is maybe what the bread is in the UK, certainly what the bread is in the US, um, most bread, where it has a ton of ingredients that are absolutely foreign to our bodies. Um, that are these additives and emulsifiers that allow the bread to last for weeks and weeks on the shelves. So you're taking something that's, you know, wheat and yeast and water and maybe a little bit of sugar, or a little bit of egg, depending on what type of bread you're eating. Um, and you're putting in monoglycerides and you're putting in maltodextrin and you're putting in all of the soy lecithin and all of these different ingredients that the human body for many of us, well, the human body doesn't know what to do with, and our microbiome um, is, is digesting and using its energy, um, perhaps for the worse. So organisms that don't belong there are, are, now, are now in our guts, um, or that don't belong there in the numbers that they now are in, are proliferating because of these things that we're taking in. So Carlos Montero in Brazil has basically said, he's at the University of Sao Paulo, 
And he has basically said, listen, we need to be able to identify what these foods are, what these substances are in order to start avoiding them. And that's how he's come up with the Nova system that he uses to try to at least define what these ultra processed foods are. This is so interesting. And I often think about how these days um, it feels like going through an obstacle course or, or, or like there are traps because there is something that looks like food it tastes like food, it smells like food, but actually it's not food. It, those, for, so the US is a great example, and I have to say, even as a nutritionist who specializes in gut inflammation, when I go to the US, I struggle when I go and buy food. I struggle. The labels make me dizzy. One day I did a, a whole bunch of stories at Traders Joe. As you say, there's a lot of mislabeling. So not only you have to 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 try and understand what's on the labels but you also have to try and ignore the lies that are written everywhere and um and a lot of foods in the states like bagels you buy in the supermarket really it should be four or five ingredients max and there are 22 there that is not food so as a as a rule of thumb if you want to reduce your gut inflammation not reduce you know unexplained weight gain, count the number of ingredients. But now again, for example, what I, what I find in the UK, and it's the same in the US and in many, even in France, because now I look at labels everywhere, um, within the same brand, and I'm going to name, okay, lint chocolate, the dark chocolate, 70% dark chocolate only has cacao, cacao butter and sugar were good. The same chocolate, dark chocolate, but with added sea salt, will have soy lecithin in it. So there is an emulsifier. So you can't rule out an entire brand. You've got, at this point in time, we have to have the education to read labels. Recently, I was in France and I wanted, I had like craving for carrots and I wanted to buy grated carrots. They have a way of making them in France, which is delicious. And in delis, which are everywhere in the streets of Paris, it'll be grated carrots with olive oil, uh, vinegar or lemon, salt and pepper. That's it. If you buy it from supermarkets, they have thickeners, they have emulsifiers in it. So the texture is better. So us as consumers, we have to accept the fact that if we're going to buy a peanut butter that's clean, it's going to split. The oil will split. It's going to look off, but actually it's better for you. So we have to re-educate what we accept. What a wonderful point. I love that point about peanut butter because this is, this is actually in my book um, where we started buying all of these natural products, all of these products without these emulsifiers, things that uh, keep things looking lovely on the shelf, but are actually horrible for our bodies. And peanut butter is a prime example. My husband, whom I love dearly, okay, let me just put that, let me say that and make that clear. Um, and he's a very, very brilliant person um, in general. But when it comes to food, he, he, we were learning together, right? And so uh, we had bought the natural peanut butter. And just as you say, it has water components and oil components. And anything with those two components that don't have emulsifiers are going to eventually separate. And so, yes, the oil floats to the top. And and this is something that I think, this is lost knowledge that we have to reclaim, right? But yes, in a real food, if you let it say, he says, well, we've made peanut butter before and it didn't do that. Yes, because we consumed it within three days. So if you create an, emulsif an emulsification naturally, right, you mix oil and, and water substances uh, at high speed together naturally, uh, it's going to last for some length of time without splitting. So the reason why the supermarket peanut butter has split is that it hasn't gone bad. It's just been sitting around and it's allowed those elements, right? We know that, that um, water elements and oil elements will repel. Um, each other. And so you let it sit there and it will, but it's not that it's gone bad. Um, and that's, he wanted to throw it out. My husband, I was like, no, right. This is very expensive peanut butter. You buy when you buy this natural peanut, please don't, 
please don't throw out our $10 peanut butter. It's fine. Just use a spoon and mix it. Yes. We, um, it, uh, but this is a general trend. We have, we, we think that our eyes can tell if a food is good or not. And that's why we want fruits to all have the same size and no bruising. And, and, and this is something we need to do, like the re-educate the way we think about it. And it's the same thing around germs. Um, you know, my, my children, when they, when they drop food on the floor, I make them eat it. <laughs> they think I'm the crazy nutritionist mom. And I'm like, we're dying of not having enough germs. Like the hygiene hypothesis shows that Crohn's and ulcerative colitis uh, incidence is lower in sub-Saharan Africa and um, in India. But you take someone from India, you move them to the US, they're having all this food that's too clean and with all these additives that you're mentioning, and there's gut inflammation possibly leading to an autoimmune condition. Um so it's is this whole thing of accepting the look of things and 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 simply nature. So um Don, when it comes to the obesity epidemic in the US and the general health of the population. So I think last year for the first time, um the life expectancy of Americans has gone down. Um, in the history of collecting data on this. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about that? Do you think that it's linked to the food? Um, What would you advise people to do in in order to improve their health in the US? Great, great question. So I think we had seen it stagnating for many years. And I do think that that's due to the food. I think um, the U.S. unfortunately, I believe I read recently, had uh, has four percent of the world's population, but we had sixteen percent of COVID deaths. Uh, so that a lot of the uh, a lot of the loss in life expectancy was actually attributed to that here. But it's linked, as as you're saying, to the obesity epidemic. So we saw that that folks who suffer from a lot of chronic diseases, diabetes in particular, was a huge one. Um, and generally folks who, who tend to carry excess weight can be more prone to diabetes, type two diabetes. And in those folks, we did see a lot of, of unfortunately, um, death from, from COVID. So, so that's part of it too, but it's also linked to our rates of chronic disease in the U S. Um, and we know that if you suffer from chronic conditions, that puts you at, at much higher risk for so many things. So that's probably why we saw what we saw, but it's frightening, you're right, to see the declines in in health. And in in one population here in particular in the US, the indigenous population, the Native American population, uh, saw the biggest loss of of gains in in life. And so I think that maybe the the and I hope I'm getting this right because I haven't looked at this study in a while, but uh, the average life expectancy for someone um, from the Native American population here in the U.S. was 65, 65 Gosh. years, Gosh. which is, yes, which is really low, very low and very, very upsetting. And there's a huge movement in that community, which is amazing. There's someone called the Sioux Chef, which is a, a tribe here, the Sioux tribe, um, who's trying to reclaim their food heritage because that was really taken from them. Um, and so the sous chef and others have been making a big push to reclaim the, the natural foods uh, that those populations subsisted on for thousands of years before the introduction of these highly processed foods, these ultra processed foods that were basically forced upon them. Um, and so, so there's, there's a huge push because the, the hugest, um, trauma caused by, by these foods is now being seen in the indigenous communities and their leaders and food advocates, um, in those communities are really starting to, um, vocalize and, and, and try to, get their communities to embrace how important eating 
whole foods and and natural foods and locally grown foods. We haven't touched on that, but how important those things are. And so there is a movement here in the U.S. Um, and it is being led in in a lot of places by the communities that have been most impacted by by what's gone wrong with our with our food supply. That's really sad, but also really interesting to 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 look into those statistics. So, coming back to the point that I have um, that I have mentioned at the beginning of the podcast around health taboos, um, when Don and I had our first call and we met, she mentioned a study where you had two groups of mice that were fed the exact same diet. And one group of mice was given clean water. The other one was given water with those zero-calorie additives and emulsifiers. The group of mice that was having the emulsifier started gaining weight when the, the first group, the control group, was not. So my point here is we're a bit like those mice. We don't know what we are ingesting and the kind of effect it has on our bodies or we didn't and now we're starting to know so if you suffer from any health issue i really urge you to to not feel guilty we need to remove guilt and shame over being overweight and now i'm going to say something i might get cancelled for but it is what i truly think i find the body positivity movement slightly condescending because instead of helping people who are unhealthy, and there is a healthy BMI, you can debate that BMI is not, not the best measure, but we definitely know when someone is morbidly obese. When you have excess adipose tissue, that increases inflammation in your body, that increases complications of any communicable disease, like we've seen with COVID, and Don has just explained that, but also increases the chances of non-communicable diseases and of gene expression. So if there is heart attacks in your family or cancer, you have many more chances of developing it if you're quite overweight. My hope is that we can educate people more, remove the taboo, and not add things like saying, oh, you're doing so great. It's not about looks. It's if you're needing help physically or mentally, you should be able to access that help and not being told, oh, you're great the way you are. I find that super condescending. <laughs> yes. And I don't know if we talked about this today. So I, I remember talking to, to you with you about the, the mouse study and it was polysorbate 80, I believe, and um, CMC, carboxymethylcellulose or cellulose gum, uh, that the mice were given tasteless, odorless, right? No, no calorie for us, but certainly the microbiome is doing something with it. Um, so yes, that study. And in those additives were also looked at in terms of inflammation markers and in terms of um, colitis. And yes, we're shown to have increased rates of those things as well, as well as metabolic syndrome, right? So as well as trouble with blood sugar and cholesterol and those things. But there was another study done in humans, right? So when you when you talk, and that maybe was more recent, so maybe we didn't get a chance to discuss that yet, but I'd love to discuss that now if, if we can. Absolutely. Um, so there was another study done, which was absolutely brilliant by a researcher by the name of Kevin Hall, who um, is based out of the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. And what he did was he took humans, right? Because we always say, well, that's in mice and humans and mice are different. And even though most of the nutrition studies are in mice, right? Because they're incredibly expensive to do. But Kevin Hall was able to take uh, two groups. And one group, he gave to them a whole foods-based diet, right? So all of the things that you're, you're promoting and you're encouraging people to eat. And then the other group, he gave to them a mostly ultra-processed food diet. Now, that's not so strange because we know that about 60% of the food we consume here in the U.S. in the average diet is ultra-processed. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was almost they were getting a typical diet, really, a typical American diet, um, or we say standard American diet. So uh, the group that was consuming the standard American diet, the ultra-processed diet, 
actually gained a kilo within two weeks. And they monitored for everything. They monitored all the macros. They monitored for sugar intake. They monitored and they kept it the same. Exercise, they kept the same. But the group that was eating the ultra processed diet actually consumed 500 calories a day more and gained a kilo within two weeks. So then this was the brilliant part of the study. They switched the groups and everyone acted as their own control. And so when they switched the groups, and the group that was eating the ultra processed food went on to eat the whole foods diet. And the group that was eating the whole foods diet went on to eat the ultra processed foods. The exact opposite happened. So the group that was eating whole foods lost a kilo. The group that was now eating the ultra processed gained a kilo. Again, with everything being kept the same, except for these ultra processed foods that are full of these additives and emulsifiers. So that was the only thing that changed. And then I had someone say to me when I explained this diet, well, perhaps people were eating more of the ultra processed food because it tasted better. So Dr. Hall, who is a wonderful researcher, thought to ask the participants to rate the food they were eating. And it turns out that the palatability rating for both of, for everything that they were eating, whether on the whole foods or the ultra processed foods, they rated very highly. So it wasn't that, oh, this is just so delicious, I'm going to eat more of it. But there's something in the ultra-processed food that is encouraging us to eat more of it. And again, not the sugar content, not the salt, or you know, partly yes, that, but not only that. Because again, in the whole foods diet, those things were accounted for and matched as well. That's so interesting. I think that... or from the work that I've been doing and the people that I've have been observing, ultra processed foods have a way of hitting dopamine receptors in a different manner. Because if you eat grilled fish, it's very hard to binge. Mm. It's very hard to binge on steamed broccoli with a bit of olive oil and salt. But it's so easy to binge on a pack of Oreos. You mindlessly have them. And I think there is something that it's designed to, to be addictive on top of, you know, all the harmful things that it does to us. But the beauty about switching to better foods is from all the testimonials that I'm getting from people who are on the Eat, Burn, Sleep platform, they all say, I don't have cravings anymore because, of course, you improve the gut microbiome, you stabilize blood sugar levels, you have higher energy, better neurotransmitters uh, production, your mental well-being in improves, you don't have the ups and downs and your HPA axis is no longer dysregulated, you, you have less cravings. But also, they say, oh, my, my taste buds have changed, now I mm -hmm. crave the right foods. Did you find that as well for yourself, Dawn? Actually, yes. And my first indicator for that, taste buds being able to change and the foods that, that we like being able to change. And that's so important, right? Because if we're not eating things that we like, no one can, can keep, keep it up forever, right? So we have to enjoy what we're eating, right? And, and we should enjoy what we're eating. And, um, and so I was a big, oh, and, and don't cringe when I say this, but I was a big diet soda drinker, a big diet Coke drinker, um, before I was pregnant. And then of course, you know, I, when I became pregnant, even though I didn't, you know, I said, I'm not going to drink this because this is maybe bad. So I'm not going to drink this while I'm pregnant. And I had given it up when I was pregnant. And then, um, when I had had my child and, you know, um, I stopped nursing, I said, oh, well, great. I can drink my diet Coke again. And I couldn't stand it. I thought it tasted absolutely awful. Um, so that was that was one thing. Um, and and what's funny is you talk about this this addiction with these ultra processed foods. And I think you're absolutely right. There's another author, Michael Moss, that's written about that. And I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but it's absolutely great. And he talks about you know how this happens that we get this 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 rush of dopamine or whatever other substances are there when we consume this food. And I definitely think that's a part of it. Although certainly the microbiome is involved um, as well. But I had a patient, I've actually had a few patients at this point tell me, and I do talk about this in, in my book, who would say, you know, they would eat a piece of cake or whatever pastry and they would be satisfied with it. 
right? So a homemade baked good, homemade pastry, and they would have their small portion of it. And yes, that's wonderful. That was a lovely piece of cake. And now I'm done. But you're right. There is something with these ultra processed foods that people just keep going with it. And they're not satisfied after one portion of the ultra processed stuff. Um, I don't know that we know exactly what it is, but we definitely know that if you have a choice between having a homemade baked good or something ultra processed, you're probably a lot more likely to be satisfied and be able to stop um, at a reasonable point, right? Have our natural systems that tell us, oh, now you've had enough and now you're satisfied when you have something that's, that's actually made with real ingredients as opposed to something ultra processed. Absolutely. I also think that, I mean, I'm not sure, but I think it might have something to do with the weight as well. Things are ultra processed, although they are, you know, full of things are not great from a micro or macronutrients perspective. They're also weirdly lighter. So you can have much more. If you make mm. bake a nice cake from the eat burn sleep platform at home you'll notice that the slice is actually heavier i think there is a a a, a thing where it, it makes you feel fuller and also the balance between carbohydrates and fat will be better when those you buy are generally much higher in sugar so the carbs is much higher and that can you know really dysregulate your blood sugar level so if you make a cake at home even if there is gluten and dairy and you make it with butter and flour it's still going to be 25 percent. 25 percent is gen generally you put a quarter of of flour a quarter of butter a quarter of eggs um and what's the last quarter <laughs> i'm the baker i should know <laughs> you know butter, flour <laughs> sugar sugar of course <laughs> thank you <laughs> so it, it it's balanced and I think that probably helps blood sugar regulation. Um, you're 100% right on that, by the way. And you're talking about a concept called the glycemic index. And, and you're absolutely right. When we're having food that has protein and fat, as well as, as the carbohydrate, it absolutely slows down the rate of rise of our blood sugar, particularly when those carbohydrates have not been ultra processed. And if we want to talk about um, at some point, at any point, you know, folks with diabetes, and and what that that means for them it's it's hugely impactful to get rid of these ultra processed carbohydrates you're a hundred percent right yeah absolutely um we i actually there is a section dedicated to diabetes on the platform and just um a very simple uh a very simple tip to all our listeners if you mix fat with carbohydrates and 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 you can think of all carbohydrates as source of sugar because eventually the molecules at the end of the day is similar to sugar. If you have it with fat at the same time, it spends longer at the stomach level and the sugar goes into your bloodstream slower. This is what lowers the glycemic index. So rule of thumb, if you're going to have you know, some something sweet, just make sure there's a bit of fat at the same time. So a homemade cake will naturally have that. Um, yes, diabetes is a huge problem. It is a, a pandemic, really. It's around the world. And it is completely driven by by the way we eat now. So too, too much sugar, emphasis on carbohydrates, even between meals, and this grazing culture of keeping blood sugar levels elevated at all times. So we never get a chance to tap into our fat stores and we completely tire our pancreas. <laughs> yes. And, and so I cannot tell you the last few years I've, I've been taking care of patients who um, do not have a health insurance here in the U S and I know this for listeners who are not in the U S this is, this is going to sound completely insane. And, and of course it is that, that we all don't have an ability to get healthcare here in the U S. Um, but I've been able to provide care to folks who don't have insurance and many of them, um, do the yard work, do the house cleaning, do the, do the tasks, um, that involve so much movement and so much effort and they're burning so many calories, right? Just in their, in their jobs, right? More than, more than your, your average gym goer 
would be burning, right? If you've ever tried to mow your own lawn, um, it, it's, it's, it's a lot. And these folks are doing it the entire day. And yet they have diabetes. How can that be? How can that be if we're told, oh, it's our fault if we have blood sugar problems. It's our fault if we have diabetes because we're not moving enough. And while that's very true, right? I know I'm not. Um, it's certainly not true for the patients that I've been caring for. They move eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, six days a week. Um, so that can't be right. And it's the food for them, right? For many of us, yes, we do need to move more. I don't want to tell people, no, you don't need to. Yes, we all need to move. That's, that's, but for people that are moving, why are they getting diabetes, right? For people who are moving to that extent, why are they having problems with blood sugar? And it's remarkable because I wasn't able to treat them with the medications I would normally want to use because they're very, very expensive, cost prohibitive, $1,000 for a single medication actually a month. I know. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe for, <laughs> for those not familiar with the U.S. healthcare system, but um, very, very common. And so there's no way that these folks could afford these medications. So I said, well, we'll either have to do insulin and a less expensive form of insulin than I would normally, again, want to use. Um, or we have to completely change your diet. And people would say, well, yes, let's do the diet thing. And what's remarkable is that a lot of these folks come from other countries where scratch cooking, cooking from scratch, was a thing they were familiar with. And so it wasn't that hard to, you know, I said, well, what did... What did your mother make? What did your grandmother make? And they knew. And I said, can you make that? And they said, yes. So they did that. And I can tell you, and I know, I know, obviously, you know, but, and although I don't know if the units are the same, um, but I think so in the, in the UK, the hemoglobin A1C number, um, they would come in with numbers of 12, 13%. Um, and they would start eating whole foods. And I would also give them some medications that were not too expensive. So metformin um, is a very common one. Uh, and so I don't want to say it was just the food. But metformin, we can expect a 1% to 2 percentage point drop with. The other medications, maybe 1% or half a percent. They went from 12 or 13, normal being less than 5.7. Um, and folks with diabetes, we want less than 7%. And within several months, eating whole foods with some some medication would drop down to eight or even seven, which is where, which was what the goal was. And it was remarkable to see that because I was told that was impossible. When I was training, I was told, no, no, if someone's above 10, you've got to give them insulin. And now the newer medications that they can't afford at all, um, or, or you can't do it. And then I didn't have a choice. So of course we went with diet and it worked really, really well. And that to me was just one of the most remarkable things. I, our listeners can't hear how big my smile is right now. <laughs> but I've, I've seen this, you know, many times the thing is, there is the theory and then there is what happens when you implement things. Coming back to the point that you're making to your patients about cooking traditional foods, the more I research gut health, inflammation, and the, you know, the further I go in my research, the more I realize that traditional foods are actually the healthiest. You don't need to go and have some kale juice to be healthy. In fact, if you have kale juice every day, you'll probably completely dysregulate your thyroid function because it's a goitrogenic. But a lot of traditional cuisines start with garlic and an onion, antioxidants, um, anti-inflammatory, antiviral, antibacterial, with a bit of olive oil, oleic acid, omega-9. If you put turmeric in your cooking, you absorb it, it's fat-soluble. If you have it as a shot, it's just going to go straight through you. So to anyone remembering how they would traditionally cook in their families, that's a great starting point. So we talk about the Mediterranean diet a lot in, in medicine, right? And how healthy it is. Um, and I think that's, that it is healthy. And I love the Mediterranean diet, but that's totally got a Western bias to it, right? So that's a diet that we're familiar with. And you make such a good point about traditional diets and how you're absolutely right. So many of them have the same starting points 
Um, and, and it's, it's through hundreds of years of trial and error that traditional diets are, are healthy because of course people needed to survive. So they wound up cultivating and eating those things that provided the most nourishment for them. Um, and so when you talk about traditional diets anywhere, right? And, and we're not talking about paleo. We're not talking about eat like a caveman. We're talking about just eat like your grandparents, you know, or maybe great grandparents at this point, which again, that knowledge can be reclaimed. Like we talked about the indigenous communities here in the United States, but whether it's Africa or Latin America or the Middle East or Asia, any of these places have traditional diets that, that are much, much better than the, the standard American diet or the standard Western diet um, that, that we've all sort of become so accustomed to. But it's not that hard to go back a generation or two. And, and that's really, I think, what we should be striving for. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I'd like to ask you three, you've given us many, many tips, but if you could give our listeners three tips to consistently stick to for better gut health, less bloating and better health in general. Okay. So the, I, I think that the guiding principle in all of this, and I know you do this, um, with the eat, burn, sleep platform is it has to be easy because if it's not easy, if it's not convenient, then it's, it's hard to maintain. We're all busy. We're all stressed out. So it needs to be easy. And so to that end, my son actually gave me a really good tip. He's a teenager. And so what I've learned about teenagers is, is they're just um, more pure versions of the rest of us. And <laughs> they're, they're, everything is right out there. So um, he said, mom, I went to my friend's house and they always have fresh fruit out. And I said, we always have fresh fruit. You know, I'm very like, this is my thing. I'm very offended that he thinks we don't have fresh, fresh fruit. I said, go into the refrigerator. He goes, no, no, no. My friend's mom like just puts it out, right? It's just, it's out there. And you can just take the fruit as you're passing by the kitchen. And I said, well, that's okay. So that's my first tip. My first tip is have it on hand, have good choices on hand, right? So if you've got fruit, wash it and put it out on the counter so that, um, so that, you have easy access to it, but certainly if you have teenagers, that's what they'll grab instead of some packet from the, from the cabinet. So that's my first tip. Just have it out. If cut up some fruit, have it as a fruit salad, have it in your refrigerator ready to go. So it's easy, right? If you have a moment to do that. And then if you put a little lemon juice on it, it won't get brown, right? So, okay. So have it available. First tip. Um, the second one would be don't force yourself to eat anything. We have to find joy in what we're eating. And that goes back to the traditional diets that, that we were just talking about, right? That was, those foods were joyful. They were wonderful. And, and if you go to France and if you go to Italy and if you go to places, they're still finding joy in food and we need to, to reclaim that joy. So enjoy what you're eating would, would be my second one. And then the last one, I'm actually going to steal from, from a physician that I met in the UK. So when I was in medical school, I got to go to uh, spend a month in the in the nhs in some some surgeries when i first heard i was in surgery i was very scared because that means the operating room here and over there of course it means a, a clinic um so i was assigned to a surgery that i would uh normally call a clinic and i i was i had a mentor there who was a physician in the nhs and we had seen a patient who we had diagnosed as being pregnant and i went into my usual routine of of what we would do here in the u.s which is don't eat this and don't do that. And don't, you know, a whole list of don'ts. And the patient looked up at, at my mentor at the UK uh, GP and, and just gave a look like horrified, a horrified look at what I was saying. And the, the, the physician said to her, Oh, don't worry about it. She's American. Just be sensible. And I thought, <laughs> of course I was very embarrassed, but I thought in my head, Oh, just be sensible. I had never said that to anyone as a piece of advice before, but what a wonderful piece of advice, right? Don't go to extremes, just be sensible about it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. I'm going to internalize it. And I think that that's wonderful advice. So my third tip would be be sensible. You don't 
have to be extreme because again, that's hard to maintain. And I also don't know that it's so healthy, right? And especially with food and diet, we, we go to extreme sometimes, not, not you and I, but other people <laughs> can go to extremes. And, and I feel like I, I will take that advice from, from the UK GP who said, just be sensible about it. That's such a British thing to say. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in this for a long time. So I couldn't agree more, actually. You know, the eat, burn, sleep lifestyle, the, I try and teach people or reteach people moderation. It's about relearning how we used to be. And I always tell people, it's not about perfection, it's about damage limitation. Mm. If you bring in a pro perfectionist approach to health, you're bound to fail. I love champagne. I love fine wines. I sometimes have a sweet tooth. I sometimes want to have, you know, um, naughty foods. I, I allow myself as long as I don't do it more than 20% of the time is roughly the guideline. And it, and I completely agree with you. It's about It's about being making it sustainable. So the joy you're talking about is absolutely key. And food is life. Food should be celebrated. We shouldn't be scared of food. Food is what allows us to be here. It's it, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Um, Don, thanks so much for joining us today. So your book, Eat Everything, How to Ditch Additives and Emulsifiers, Heal Your Body and Reclaim the Joy of food is coming out in all the bookstores on the 2nd of May, 2023. Can people, all, yes. sorry, absolutely. Yes. It's coming out May 2nd, 2023 here in the U S. So okay. I'm not, I'm not sure about elsewhere. Um, and yes, it's available for pre-order on, on all your, whatever sites people like to go on Amazon, Barnes and Noble target, um, here in the U S and I'm not sure, um, when it's going to be available elsewhere yet. In any case, I will be linking it so everyone can check it out. I'll link it on the Yalda Loves page as well on eatburnsleep.com. So if you don't come back to the, this podcast, you can find it on the website. Um, Dawn is also on Instagram. It's at Dr. Dawn Sherling, S-H-E-R-L-I-N-G. I'm going to link all of this under, under the podcast thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you learned a few things. And thanks again, Don, for joining us today and for being such a wonderful source of inspiration, education, and knowledge. Thank you. And thank you for doing all of those very same things. Thank you to all of you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to go on eatburnsleep.com to learn more about gut health and chronic inflammation. I would really appreciate if you could rate this podcast and of course feel free to share it with anyone who might enjoy it. Have a beautiful day.